Thank you for joining IAB There. Hello, everybody. Today is September 2nd, 2020. I'm Randall Rothenberg. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the IAB. And if you're here, we're there. This is IAB There, our daily live stream in which we connect the digital advertising ecosystem to each other. Our topics for today's show, the continued growth of streaming during the pandemic. Basically, the topic is we've seen the future and it is being streamed. Our special guest is Tim Natividad, the head of advertising sales and performance marketing at Roku. For Tim, I actually wore my Roku purple. Uh, and Tim, I'd love you to come onto the stream so we can uh, we can talk to you. Excellent. Thank you, Randall. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, there. I'm excited to be on IAB there. Yeah, we're kind of here, there, and everywhere. So uh, that's that's the way we uh, we roll at the IAB. You know, Tim, uh, we've spent a fair amount of time uh, together. You're one of the uh, the most, um, I think, you know, kind of informed and eloquent, uh, not just advocates for streaming, but explainers of what's actually going on in the real world of uh, consumer and business activity uh, in video. Um, if it's okay with you, I, I really just want to like pepper you with questions on behalf of our audience just for, you know, to get an understanding of what's happening because we, we appear to be right in the middle of an enormous transition that to my mind makes the shift from the broadcast era to the cable era look almost like a uh, kindergarten playpen. Um, what have you been seeing in a nutshell at Roku in terms of consumer activity during the past five or six months that we've been locked up? Yeah, well, you're right. It's it's a new space. Streaming um, is moving fast. And, you know, with this year in particular, um, I, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that people are streaming more this year than they ever have before. Um, you know, to, to give some sense of, of what we're seeing in, in the numbers, uh, last quarter, uh, we added an entire state's worth of active accounts. So we actually added more active accounts in Q2 than the number of households in Colorado. And that translated into um, the same number of streaming hours in last quarter than we saw in the entire year of 2017. Now, mm -hmm. those actual numbers uh, absolutely are uh, 43 million active accounts, and we're now seeing upwards of 14.6 billion hours streamed total. Uh, but you're right, there's there's something else happening here. Uh, what's actually happening and, and what's actually different um, is that streaming activity has picked up so much, streamers don't actually know what they want to watch. They need help. So as more content comes onto the Roku platform and as more time is spent at home, we're now seeing that one in three Roku streamers doesn't even know what they want to watch. So that one Roku streamer represents a fairly large, sizable, addressable audience. So if you're a content company or a media and entertainment company, and you've decided that streaming is going to be the next delivery vehicle, as you cite, you know, uh, we see linear TV, to use your words, as a, a kindergarten playpen. Um, you know, our job at Roku is to help our, our content partners find the best user or the best audience uh, most likely to watch their content and vice versa. We owe our users a responsibility to give them the best uh, uh, content. And I've seen this a few times 
in my career, anytime selection or breadth of information widens, so too does the burden of recommendation. And so increasingly, our business has become a performance advertising business that we can help media and entertainment companies find their audiences. And um, you know, we, we recently announced that our performance advertising business is up 346% year over year. And I'm thankful and proud and, and, and excited for the team for making that work happen. I want to I I get to the advertising side in a minute. I want to stick with the uh, consumer side for, uh, for a bit, though, because I'm really intrigued by the growth in numbers of subscribers. You know, um, this has been a Roku story for quite a while. Uh, but what I find so intriguing is that you've got other larger companies like Amazon that are in this marketplace as well. Um, you would think that would take, and not just larger, but been around for a much longer period of time. Um, what is it that kind of has made Roku the go-to when, when uh, consumers are thinking about streaming? I mean, I, I know it, I've got a I've got a Roku box attached to one television, and I've got a Roku embedded uh, television in the other room. So, I mean, I know the second one I bought, I did it just because of ease of access. Right. I'm, wondering, I'm wondering what you know in terms of why people are coming to uh, to Roku. Well, you're right. You know, it sounds like you've got a couple of different uh, devices um, uh, within the Roku portfolio. We do have um, Roku devices that plug into TVs, and we also have the Roku software, the TV software built into uh, uh, OEMs or, or TVs themselves. We're now in one in three smart TVs. Um, but the number one reason why consumers are cutting the, the cord, so to speak, is cost savings. Yeah, uh, Cost savings are particularly important right now, and increasingly, I think, will soon be in a place where the conversation shifts from cord cutters to cord nevers. Uh, we now see 57% of households having shaved or cut or never even having had traditional pay TV. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's, there's also, you know, relatively low risk to cutting the cord. Um, we're, we see 92% of Roku users report that they're very satisfied with their decision to cancel traditional pay TV. And, and when they do, largely, they, they stick for, for two main reasons. One, savings, as I mentioned. Uh, Roku users save approximately $75 per month on home entertainment. And secondly, they love the experience. They love the brand. Um, we're interested in bringing the best experience to home entertainment possible, and that includes sight, sound, and motion. Uh, we do have sound bars as well. Right. Um, users enjoy the convenience and flexibility of content options. Um, what, are, are, are most of them, uh, you know, are, are most of your users, um, uh, is the 80-20 rule apply? Are most of them using it for a relatively standardized set of, of popular channels? Or are they more like me? I, I'm, I'm a long tail user. I, I'm not ashamed to admit that uh, my Roku Q is filled, I think I told you this the last time we yeah. talked, you know, absolutely filled with, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, 1970s splatter uh, movie channels and uh, kind of old horror movies. I mean, I'm astonished at the 
the the depth and breadth of the long tail that's accessible easily accessible from Roku. But what what is the average Roku user? Is he more or she more like me with a weird set of eclectic interests, or more of a standard consumer of uh, 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 relatively well known video channels? Well, it's you know it's a funny uh, thing that you're raising. You know, the streaming space is um, vast and large, and um, there are 14,000 channels on our platform. So uh, the space is way more diverse than uh, you know Netflix or Disney. While they are uh, fantastic partners and um, have helped raise the level of awareness of, of streaming, we're seeing a lot of a lot of consumers on the platform represent, you know, your your habits. You um, streaming is not one all encompassing thing. Um, there are many different types of services like AVODs, advertising video on demand. Um, they're experiencing a boon of activity at a time when consumers are feeling the pressure of an economic downturn. So that concept of free content is highly appealing, as well as uh, subscription services and um, you know another area where we're seeing consumers gravitate towards right now are virtual MVPDs, right. uh, which largely represent the streaming substitute for traditional pay TV. Yeah, so, so by this, you're, you're talking about uh, things like uh, like Pluto and, uh, and Tubi. Um, there you go. Yep. yep, yeah, that's exactly right. Very, very, you know, so, so I think one of the, um, uh, one of the very interesting terms that, uh, that popped out during the new fronts this year, heard about a little bit before, but it became one of the, you know, kind of the key repeated terms was fast, free ad supported television. And actually it, it, it's kind of the, the consumer term for, uh, virtual MPVT, MPVDs. Um, those kinds of things that present themselves to you that you don't have to search for this very large selection yeah. of, of content. I would add, you know, along with those pillars, live live mm -hmm. content still is very important today. We've seen an exponential jump in live content. So um, we do offer live content from more than a hundred. You know, we, we just ran through the list of types of channels there, but um, we see live content from over a hundred channels on our platform and that ranges all the way from sports to news to lifestyle on our, uh, our our live TV channel guide that is now part of the Roku platform as well. So this is translating I, I mean I don't need to be coy about this this is translating into financial results. I mean um, you've had some uh, some you know, breathtaking numbers uh, you just had I think uh, about a month ago your uh, your quarterly earnings report. And I'm looking, I'm glancing over here, you know, uh, net revenue grew 42% year on year, platform revenue increased 46% year on year, gross profit was up almost 30%. ARPU is going up. That's for the uninitiated, that's average revenue uh, per user. I'm intrigued because you're sitting in, in, in the belly of that specific beast. You're, you're, you're the fellow who's bringing in the money. Where is it? coming from? I'd love you to be clinical as much as possible. Is it coming from classic performance marketers? Is it coming from classic brand marketers? Or are those definitions now so, you know, blended together as to be useless? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you're, you're nice to, to be very uh, uh, open about what we've reported in earnings. And, and I have to say, while leading the team, the work is really the output is rather a work of uh, the team. Um, yeah, you know, 
it's funny. I think it's a little ironic to think of marketers mentioning um, that they're now ready to test branding or that we seem to be still thinking through this brand versus performance bifurcation. Um, you know, we've been in the industry for a while, Randall, you and I, I still remember hearing marketers say that they were ready to test digital and sprinkle some dollars into uh, digital self-service advertising platforms. Um, now, I think OTT specifically has benefited from being one of those testing grounds. Yeah. Um, and, and that seems to have changed a little bit. So here, you know, before coronavirus, what I observed was addressable and TV advertising via OTT sitting on the fringe of digital advertising. Now, performance advertising defined by the principles of flexibility, measurability, and targetability is the easiest marketing investment to justify because it drives business results for any advertisers or companies um, brick and mortar or digital storefront. Um, now that we're inside this, uh, let's say, sheltered at home climate, um, what I'm seeing is that rather than kind of perpetuating this bifurcation of brand versus performance, marketers are now challenging uh, publishers and partners um, like Roku uh, to simply bring those performance marketing principles to mediums yeah. that have historically owned that eye-popping real estate. And TV is one of those battlegrounds. So now, um, you know, the trend is happening much faster than ever before. And I don't think that's going to change. I mean, is uh, are you finding in your conversation? Let let let's separate the two out. So let's talk about some you know big brands uh, first. If you're going to a a Procter and Gamble, a Unilever, uh, a General Motors, um, what do you find them asking for today that they weren't necessarily asking for a year ago? Um, and, and that's a, that's a question that cuts many different ways because uh, it's are they asking for new things or are they just getting up to speed more than they were? So they're asking for things that were available a year ago. They just didn't know they, they were able to ask for them. Well, they're looking to own the entire ad experience in house on their, you know, underneath their umbrella. Uh, we're seeing a lot of Unilever brands build out their own digital e-commerce storefronts, right? And um, what we're now hearing from them is that they want to be able to understand what that pathway to purchase looks like from the moment a consumer sees their brand on the TV all the way through to the moment they research a product on their mobile phone. And now, particularly now more than ever, that period of time happens, you know, that that pathway happens a lot faster. We uh, may have just lost him for a bit uh, because he disappeared from my screen. So I'm going to fill in and, uh, and uh, talk to you. This is what I was going to ask him, uh, uh, but I'm going to mention it to the entire audience. I am intrigued because we began at IEB so three years ago now, uh, uh, a collection of pioneering research on brand disruption. Oh, we lost you for a bit. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. Uh, must be my internet connection. It's okay, because I, I begun to fill. Now I'll, I'll fill you in. What I'm in, really intrigued by what you just said is that we're finding more of the big brands acting like what we call disruptor brands or D2C yeah. brands or direct brands that, that you know, for 
more than a hundred years, these big brands uh, had a, a very kind of unitary path to market. They sold through third party retail stores. So effectively their business is a wholesale business. Um, and then they did brand advertising that would help bring people into those stores where they consummated the sale. But now they have to become the proprietors, the actual f fulfillers of those sales, which means that say a, a L'Oreal, I'm just picking them out of the blue, uh, has to act a lot more like a Glossier than it uh, than it has to act like a Revlon. That's uh, right. And and those yeah. Glossiers, uh, you know, the Glossiers of the world are digital natives. So that transition is non-existent for those challenger brands. You know, I do think we're seeing from, uh, let's call them incumbent brands like the L'Oreal example you're bringing up, they're catching up to speed on what this language and what the practice looks like, right? Um so, you know, early, especially early in the pandemic, the advertisers across the board, both disruptors and traditional, were worried about how their creative would fit. Um, so there's an element of flexibility in ad creative that is quite um, familiar for a disruptor brand, but perhaps not so for a, a traditional brand. Um, you know, those brands were coming to us, asking us what they would do, what, how we could help have their ads and campaigns work in this current climate. So um, part of how we've chosen to pivot and really cater to both disruptors and traditional brands is to help marketers go beyond the 15 and 30 second spot. Um, we've helped brands with interactive ads so that they can um, you know, offer an opportunity for consumers to click through on a TV ad. I, I have a 72 inch TCL at home. I've tried for many years to use my finger to click on the screen uh, and I don't get driven anywhere um, except my, my wife thinks I'm a, a little nutty about it. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're experimenting with different formats. Uh, we have interactive ads and, and social to video production as well to help marketers go through this shift. Yeah. You know, as you know, we've been doing uh, pioneering work at IEB over uh, now the past three or four years on uh, brand disruption. Um, and so we're going to be publishing our um, annual brand disruption study uh, in November Excellent. and looking at, looking at it this year, just looking at the preliminary, you know, we do that big, you know, 300 page study on the state of brand disruption over the course of the year, looking at all the trends and collecting them. But then we always had do deep dives in certain things that are coming up. And one thing that we know is already kind of a chapter for this year is we're calling it shopability. And it's the rise, if you just said it, shoppable advertising. You know, what forms is it taking? You know, where are the obstacles to it? Who's picking up on it? Which categories in particular? And it's a it's a fascinating story because it looks like it will, in fact, be one of the um, the real trends over the course of the uh, of the next year. We, we lost uh, Tim again. Oh, there, you're back again. Uh, maybe it's the dog chewing up the uh, motor. The T the T one line could be uh, could be in question here. This is the beauty. This is the beauty of working. Uh, working we're all team. we're all used to the work from home uh, dynamics at this point. I hope. Following on that line, I mean, I wanted to put you on the spot a bit, and, and if you don't have an answer, don't worry about it. But but um, it, it, you know, thinking uh, of the. Um, you know, the Glossiers of the world and the Madison Reeds and the away luggages and some of the great 
the great disruptor brands of the uh, the past couple of years, uh, uh, the Dagny Dovers. I mean, I can go on and on. The you know the uh, listing IEB two fifty. Can you think of any any uh, of these uh, disruptor brands that have been effectively you know made on Roku that kind of came to you early enough and said, you know what, we want to place a big bet on uh, streaming video, and we think purple is the way to go. Well, you know, I, I um, listen, every company is responsible for making their own name. And I don't want uh, Roku to um, uh, overtly take any uh, credit for a company's success, especially in these times. So I would say anyone who has been part of our partnership has been uh, doing a strong job of uh, building their brand and their equity on their own right. At the same time, you know, we did choose to bring Peloton onto the platform earlier this year. And, and that represents a really great synergy. We are seeing uh, a boon of consumer activity in this at home, at fitness trend. And Peloton represents a really great opportunity for um, them to build their brand and their audience on Roku through our performance marketing solutions that help them get subscriptions both on the Roku platform and off the Roku platform. So uh, that's one strong example. Tell, tell more about this, because I think it's, a, it's an interesting, because they're not just an advertiser, they're a programmer as well uh, right. on the platform. And so this represents a, 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 a kind of a hybrid uh, uh, strategy and a hybrid th thinking and producing around what marketing actually is. Well, it's, it's vertical integration in the consumer trend of fitness. You know, you look at a brand like Peloton, yeah, you're right. They have a strong set of content um, that helps keep folks engaged. But at the same time, they have apparel, fit for fitness. Um, they have tips and trends. Um, so what, what you're really seeing is with a lot of disruptor brands, they're choosing to own the entire uh, passion point for yeah. the consumer, in this case, fitness. We've seen other instances as well with Third Love, uh, a woman's underwear brand, yep. done a fantastic job of, of uh, almost repivoting the relationship that we have with our bodies to um, focus more on positivity and body imagery. Um, we're seeing some of that messaging come through in the ad creative that they give us as well. Yeah, Dave Spector, the, the, you, who, yeah. you know, the yeah. co-founder and co-CEO with his wife, Heidi, uh, is a member of the IEB board of directors. So they've been kind of uh, one of our original disruptor uh, brand members to help us build that uh, you know our profile in that uh, in that marketplace. Hey, um, you know one of the other uh, real issues uh, that really became uh, very apparent during the new front is something both tantalizing but also still slightly out of reach is reach, especially incremental reach. One of the hardest problems for especially big brands uh, these days is to measure measure incremental reach across multiple platforms. Mm. Um, I know that Roku, that you in particular and the rest of the team have been working uh, very hard to try and address the, uh, the challenges of identifying and measuring incremental reach. Where do you think that's going? I mean, do you think we're going to crack that nut anytime soon? Well, it's, it's certainly a hot topic. You know, Randall, IDFA the death of the cookie, it's brought a lot of attention to both OTT and Roku. Um, you know, just kind of thinking through some of the conversations we've had, if there's anything that I've learned uh, from what we're uh, going through as an industry, it's that 
relationships between tech and consumers are just like any other relationship in life, which is that they're built on trust, sensitivity, and choice, and they're real. Um, so the two things I'll shine a light on are one, a first party relationship matters. And two, brand trust is built through multiple touch points. This is all bundled under the topic of identity management. Mm -hmm. Point direct to consumer relationships are valuable and their trust is earned through fair value exchange time. And it includes a core benefit to the end consumer. Remember, uh, Roku was a, a, a streaming platform before it was an advertising business. And, and we'd like to keep it that way. A, a consumer relationship has been the core of our offering from the very start. Now, secondly, brands with multiple touch points will have more ways to establish that level of familiarity and earn that trusted position. Um, in, in other words, you know, me as a consumer, I'm, I'm only going to grant data rights based on my level of comfort with the value that I'm getting from the app. Mm -hmm. uh, we at Roku start uh, by working backwards from building customer trust with our streaming platform and concurrently, we're working to increase our touch point with consumers by improving our Roku mobile app, now you know available on both iOS and Android, and also by expanding the Roku channel into more OTT platforms. But you're not, I mean, in a way, and, and here I may be overly naive, so you know, come, come back at me on this. Uh, it seems that with all the gyrations that are now happening, um, in particular in real time, with Apple, IDFA, and iOS 14, Roku would seem to be in a very good position here in that you've got uh, a very large, very large um, uh, 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 cohort of installed devices. So you're not dependent on Apple devices at all. Uh, and, and you're basically, you, you came into being to be primarily a, a home video experience. So you're kind of home video experience native rather than mobile experience native. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And what we're seeing is that identity has emerged as advertising's new currency. Right. Disappearance of the cookie has been, of course, a big catalyst for this change. But, um, you know, with privacy regulations and the economics of data, it is pushing the conversation towards identity. And you're right. You know, we focus on. Um, the home environment, and uh, we're in a very fortunate position. Yeah, yeah, that would that, that would seem to be uh, everybody else is is especially the brands themselves worried about how are we going to reconcile all of this. And you have the opportunity to go in and say, well, and the thing that matters most for marketers, which is sight, sound, and motion, you know, brought in front of people in compelling ways. We actually have at Roku a pretty good solution for you. It's end to end. It's trusted. It's colored purple, um, <laughs> and it's easy to buy. Um, I don't mean to kind of give you your marketing campaign, but uh, well, you're, you're wearing the purple. I, I love it. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the difference between predictable and deterministic, and we'd like to stay on the right side of that. And uh, we're, we're, we're again, we're um, focused on identity management. It is a core part of our offering, and it will continue to be so. You you bought uh, you bought a, a pretty important data company uh, uh, earlier this year, DataZoo. Actually, was it, it may have been late last year. Now that I'm thinking of it, um, and uh, you created a service called OneView just a couple months ago uh, during the uh, the pandemic. That's supposed to um, offer just a, uh, just real improvements on addressability and on metrics. 
Can you let us know how you've been bringing that to the marketplace, how marketers have been reacting and which which segments? Again, I'm so interested in which categories of advertiser, you know, are the uh, the leading edge in adopting new services and new technologies. Well, you know, yeah, you're right. We're coming up on an anniversary in the in the next couple months. Um, I, I wouldn't say that there's, you know, the offering fits for everyone. I wouldn't say that there's one, you know, any any advertiser or any brand who is interested in owning um, uh, their uh, marketing through a self-service tool uh, would be the right fit for OneView. OneView is the ad buying platform uh, built for TV streaming. So um, it allows us to reach or allows marketers to reach uh, the most cord cutters of any ad platform and bring identity, as we've discussed, uh, and viewing data from the number one streaming platform. Uh, OneView is built with a direct identity connection at the core and allows uh, marketers not just to um, put their logo on the TV screen, but also to remarket to them across other devices mm -hmm. along that consumer pathway to purchase on mobile, desktop, and tablet. We do have plenty of strong brands like Drizzly, um, who has been a, a longtime user of OneView, uh, who ha frankly has also seen quite a boon during this period of time. Uh, so we're very excited about it. Uh, thank you for uh, uh, acknowledging our, our anniversary and, and hey, the teams um, have been uh, excited about the momentum from uh, this year and the vision that we have moving forward. Well, well we, we have a we have a, a person at IEB. We have a, a kind of a personal stake here. This kind of helps explain how long I've been around and how convoluted things are. But uh, you know, Bill Simmons, who is the uh, the founder yeah. Yeah. of uh, DataZoo, Willard Simmons, um, uh, was the founder of the OpenRTB uh, consortium. This is probably ten or twelve years ago. And early on, kind of came to us and said, "We really want to, you know, work uh, work with IEB on this." And we said, "Okay, we'll definitely uh, collaborate and you know, see." We don't have the cycle. IEB was tiny at that point, so we don't really have the cycles to take on what you're taking on. But let's, you know, make sure the windows and doors are open. And then a couple of years passed by, and um, IEB ended up acquiring the uh, the OpenRTB consortium that uh, Bill and a few others uh, co-founded, and it's now um, overseen, been absorbed into the uh, the tech lab, which is the, you know, as you know, the technical standard setting body, you know, for the industry. So we, we have a very soft spot in our hearts for uh, for anything DataZoo and anything that uh, that Bill Simmons kind of- uh, Dr. Bill, as I, as I call Dr. it. Dr. Bill. Dr. Our thought leader on identity management. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. but also, but a, 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 on, on top of being a thought leader, also a uh, a very warm and uh, empathetic and civic human being, and I think that's a kind of a key point. I, I like mentioning that because you know we're in an industry where like most industries people are out for themselves and they're out for their companies, and uh, uh, Bill is one of those people who um, was also always out to improve uh, the world around uh, him. So again, soft spot. Let me let me ask you. We, we only have a couple moments left, sure. but, uh, uh, but I'm interested in your own personal Tim Natividad viewing patterns and habits. Now, uh, uh, are you? Uh, do, do you have uh, you have a whole set of Grindhouse channels on your Roku oh. the way I do, or are you uh, you more of a of a mainstream, you know, Project Runway and uh, Food I, Network kind of fellow? I, 
I got to say, it depends on which TV in the household we're looking at. So the TV in the uh, garage gym outside has uh, right now the NBA playoffs on all day. Uh-huh. Which I've been really ex- eager and excited about. We've actually seen a lot of MVPDs, as we mentioned earlier, pick up sports. Um, now, the TV in the bedroom is um, I, littered is going to be the wrong word. Uh, uh, I think she can hear me, uh, but uh, maybe more inclusive with lifestyle content. Um, uh, I think there's a, a, a skin uh, plastic surgery show on Netflix that I, I keep hearing every now and then. So I think between the two of us, my wife and I in the house, we have a really good balance. I'll tell you, I'm all about um, the comeback of sports and it's it's putting some pep in my step. What are you, I mean, uh, are you seeing evidence? You're looking at um, literally, you know, billions and billions of uh, interactions, um, you know, uh, consumer interactions with uh, with media. Are you seeing anything that would either give hope or fear to uh, professional sports leagues? The opposite, really, uh, frankly, the re- the return of sports is something that we're seeing amongst our viewership and with our consumers uh, today. Um, so what we've seen in streaming on our platforms is that heavy sports viewers like myself have taken the time that they spent watching sports on linear TV and brought that time to streaming. Mm-hmm. So make of those league postponements that we saw that I suffered through throughout the summer, um, those sports fans cut down their time spent on linear TV by 23%. Mm. At the same time, in the same time period, brought up their viewership and content consumption by 17% in streaming. So we are starting to see that tit-for-tat displacement, but ultimately, I think it's a boon for the sports industry. But it didn't didn't shift from sports to other content. It just shifted from sports... It just it delayed it. It went into the uh, waited for sports to come back, and now it's now they're shifting back. Well, when we when we look at households that watched any of the big leagues on linear TV last year, those same households increased their viewership on virtual MVPDs by one hundred percent during the opening weekends of sports premieres this year. So we are seeing that viewership in sports go to streaming today. Hmm. I want to want to ask you one last question about this because we mentioned uh, virtual uh, MPVDs a, a couple times, and um, based on the consumer interactions you're seeing now, I'm going to ask an advertising issue afterwards. But based on the consumer interactions you're seeing now, if you had to place a bet on uh, on the virtual MPVDs versus video on demand, you know, call it either SVOD or AVOD. In other words, something where you don't have to make a choice, you just have a whole bunch of choices thrown at you and you just, you know, pick the channel the way I do on my, when I'm looking at um, uh, Pluto versus I have to choose something to watch right now, like I do on Amazon, what's going to win? Well, uh, you know, if I can look into the orb, maybe I can think of something. I'll say, you know, uh, we've talked about virtual MVPDs quite a bit. We are seeing a substantial increase in on-demand viewership as well. TVOD would be the other third component, TV on-demand, premium video on-demand as well. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Mulan launching 
on Disney Plus this Friday. So what we're actually seeing, you know, I'd say if you pull back, you know, a couple steps, what we're actually seeing is that convenience doesn't have to come at the expense of quality content yeah. anymore. So we're seeing that innovation, not just with virtual MVPDs, but with premium video on demand as well. The idea that we can have that fresh, exciting feeling of watching the debut of an epic like Mulan at home, uh, that's emblematic of the vision that we have at Roku to make high quality content accessible and viewable throughout the streaming decade on TVOD, on PVOD, as well as on virtual MVPs. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to close with a uh, with a plug. The um, uh, I, I I think I, I definitely told Scott Rosenberg this. I may have told you this, but. Um, at one point, because uh, I, I redid my entire apartment at one point about two years ago, and I was going on about the Vizio that I bought, and Scott got a little uh, got a little distressed and said, "What about one of the uh, the Roku TVs from uh, TCL?" Yeah. And they said, "Oh, I didn't know they existed." And so, um, so time came. I needed to get a smaller TV for the other room, and I went and I searched. For and I, I went everywhere. You know, I went on to CNET. I went on to Wirecutter, and what kept coming up is that for the money, the Roku embedded TCLs were right up at the top, and I got one. And I will tell you that in terms of ease of access yeah. for anything streaming, it's yeah. like a night and day experience. Um, so not just the quality, but the uh, the ease of setup, the ease of everything. So. Oh. That was before the sound bar, so maybe we might need to, in the spirit of sight, sound, and motion, round out the the trio there. The, 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 it will happen. It will. It will come. Tim Natividad, Natividad, I want to thank you for your time and for joining us here on uh, on IEB. There, it was uh, you know great to have you. We'll do this again because this is a never-ending subject, and you know it's changing every three weeks. Um, I, it's moving fast, and it's been a wonderful year. Randall, thanks for having me on IAB. This is great. Thanks again, Tim. I, uh, I'm being told by my overseers that it is time for us to, uh, to end. Just want to leave you with a, a little bit of information from the, uh, for the IAB. Uh, we're just a little bit more than three weeks away from the IAB podcast upfronts. Uh, which brands and agency media buyers attend for free. This is the largest event in the world of podcasting, the largest gathering of buyers and sellers, the largest opportunity for uh, brands and agencies to see the, uh, the new offerings from the most important, uh, best loved podcasters in the United States and the world. Like the New Fronts in June this year, it's going to be a virtual event where you can log in from your home or your office, or in Tim's case, uh, his garage, uh, and learn about the most exciting new audio programming. You can learn more at iab.com slash podcast upfront. Kind of no natural place to go to search. So on tomorrow's IEB there, we have a one-two punch where we will preview next week's podcast upfront uh, with our IEB guests, Zoe Soon and Greg Coleman. We'll also highlight the latest installment of our IEB ad spend research with our senior vice president of research, Sue Hogan. 
Tune in for this exciting episode. IEB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Our show today was produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ounce, John Ward, and Carrie Villanueva. I'm Randall Rothenberg. Thank you for watching. And remember, every day, if it's between Monday and Friday, you can be here with IEB There. Thank you.